Hello and welcome to Pod 45, the podcast companion to Post 45 Contemporaries. I'm your host, Michael Doherty. Post 45 is a community of scholars working on literature and culture from, as the name suggests, the post-1945 period. And Contemporaries is our online platform where writers converse with one another more directly and informally than in traditional academic publications in curated conversations about contemporary culture, which we call clusters. This podcast is where we take those cluster conversations further. And if you're interested in proposing a future cluster to Post45, stay tuned for more information after the discussion that's about to follow. Today's episode is the second part of a discussion emerging from our recent cluster, responding to and reflecting on the work of the Scottish novelist Ali Smith. That cluster is titled Ali Smith Now, and you can find it now at post45.org contemporaries. In our previous episode, my contemporaries colleagues Gloria Fisk and Francisco Robles were in conversation with cluster editors Deborah Ray Cohen and Cara L. Lewis, alongside two of the cluster's contributors, Deidre Lynch and Amy Elkins. In this discussion, we're going to hear once again from Gloria, Francisco, Deborah Ray and Cara, but this time they're joined by a different pair of scholars who contributed to the cluster, Charlotte Terrell and Walt Hunter. Sadly, we hear a little less from Walt Hunter than we would have liked to as he encountered some technical difficulties midway through our recording session. Nevertheless, I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation, which ranges across allegory, puns, Scottishness, the political and aesthetic possibilities of the novel, and the semiotics of British fried chicken chains. So let's dive now once more into the world of Ali Smith with Charlotte, Walt, Deborah Ray, Cara, Francisco, and Gloria. I'm Gloria Fisk. I'm um, I'm one of the editors of Post 45. I didn't do very much work on the editing of this cluster because the cluster editors did such a wonderful job. I am in Brooklyn right now at home. I teach at CUNY. I'm Francisco Robles. I was the Post 45 uh, cluster editor for Ellie Smith Now. Um, I live in South Bend, Indiana. That's where I am right now. Um, and I teach at the University of Notre Dame. I'm Kara Lewis. I'm one of the co-editors of the cluster on Ali Smith. I am recording right now in Chicago, Illinois, where I live, and I teach at Indiana University Northwest in Gary. I'm Deborah Ray Cohen. I was one of the cluster co-editors along with Kara. I'm in Black Mountain, North Carolina, where I live. And as of uh, the end of today, I am retired, just retired from the University of South Carolina. Congratulations, Deborah Ray. Uh, I'm Wald Hunter. I'm uh, in Colorado. I'm on sabbatical. I teach at Clemson University, and I'm a writer in the cluster. Hello, um, I'm Charlotte Terrell. I also wrote one of the essays for the cluster. Um, I am currently recording in Glasgow, Scotland, but I live in London in the UK, and I am a um, junior research fellow at Worcester College, which is a college at Oxford University. Yeah, well, thank you all. So I'll just start off with just a very simple question, which is that Walt and Charlotte, both of your pieces were characterized by a really close attention to what Ellie Smith's language is doing. And this is something that your essay shared uh, with Lindsay Turner's and Brittany Edmonds's, um, as well as Kara's um, and Alexandra's, the sort of attention to very specific formal facets of her work. And could you talk a little bit about what your interest was in even focusing on that? Was there something that just stood out or was it a sort of reading experience that just made you attached to this? For me, it was the experience of being like a sort of student copycat um, 
I was also reading writers like J.M. Kutzea around the same time I started reading Ali Smith, who, I mean, for all the things they don't share in common, what they do share in common is this sort of like obsession with words. They really turn words over in their writing. And so I got very um, obsessed, let's say, with just looking up definitions to words that they were using and trying to see what they were doing with etymologies, whether consciously or unconsciously. Um, so I guess for me, it's Smith that taught me how to do that. And I think she's very much a writer who directs you to pick up a dictionary or to take her sort of parsing of the dictionary and um, use it in the way that you're reading her and try to like find the little clues that she's leaving around, the kind of words that she's repeating the different definitional options that she's giving you. Um, yeah, so I think she's a great writer to sort of copy as a reader. That makes sense, Charlotte. I think for me, I read her the way I read almost any work of literature, which is with pretty close attention to the, to the, to the words. I think what's interesting about Ali Smith is less for me the wordplay, which sometimes I feel reduces her to, to something that like a, series of puns, which although entertaining and sometimes very moving are not what really draws me to her. Uh, rather, it's this sense that people are standing in for things that are greater than their individual selves at the same time that that kind of sacredness of the individual self is held up to be admired and, and, and cherished. And I think she does this through individual names, which is also what I am drawn to in people like Dickens or um, uh, you know, I mean, there are many writers who, who are, or Henry James, for instance, uh, too. Um, and, uh, and so I think, you know, paying attention to the proper name is something that I found myself doing when I was reading the seasonal quartet, uh, and also companion piece, which I just finished. I hope we get a chance to talk about that too. Did you like companion piece? I haven't read it yet. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's a very different novel, but it's, it's beautiful. I feel like one of the things I love about the cluster is the way the pieces kind of speak to each other. And I would actually love to hear Walt and Charlotte, like, I don't, do you guys know each other? No. Hi, Walt. Really nice to meet you, by the way. No. Hi, Charlotte. <laughs> I was actually, I feel like both of you um, develop theories of ways that um, this kind of, I, like Walt, I feel like, I actually don't always love the wordplay. I sometimes feel like for me, it's like, sometimes a little much. I, it feels a little bit um, like clever in a way that I resist a little bit. Um, but I, I like the way both of you in different ways, like Walt by talking about allegory and Charlotte by talking about some of these specific sort of wordplay usages, that, that there's something political about that. And I actually would love to hear you speak to each other. I don't know, like, Walt, I would love to hear you, like, kind of explain allegory. Like, I don't think most people think of Smith as an allegorical writer. Um, but I, I felt like you made that case, and I would love to hear that. And then also kind of to think about, I feel like one of the ways that the wordplay rises above being just cleverness is that it does kind of index the big politics of her novels. Um, but, but the ways that it does that I think are a little hard to pinpoint. So I would love to just hear you both talk about that. Yeah. I'd like to hear Charlotte, uh, um, on, on this topic. Um, I think briefly I'd say traditional way of thinking about allegory would be taken from Spencer or Bunyan and you have a, the name of a, 
a quality like hope or I don't know, um, fidelity stand in uh, or, or uh, attach itself to a, to a person. So you have these two levels moving in parallel at the same time, the sense that the person, the character is the embodiment of, of a virtue or a vice and the sense that there's a specific individual plot that the character is moving through. I think that there's a way in which in, in, in both a, maybe a slightly lighthearted way and a, and a very contemporarily relevant way, Smith is doing that with a character like art. It's obviously not standing in for a trade of moral trade, but standing in for something else, the, what, what art is. Um, and then goes through his own arc of character development. Um, but I think for me, I, the way I was able to think about that was by reading through Muriel Sparks stories where characters are feeling like they're stuck in other people's stories suddenly. And they, they have this revelation where they're like, Oh, this isn't my story. Uh, <laughs> what am I, what is my role here? And I think this is very true in companion piece uh, where the characters, some of them talk about it explicitly. I think when you tell somebody else's story, that can be a very domineering and violent act. And Smith is very interested in thinking about how people either if they can kind of take control of their own stories or because that seems a little bit too shallow of a thing to say, I think come to terms with the fact that they are living in a mesh of other stories, some of which are narrated by friends, some of which are narrated by political, powerful entities, corporations and security agencies. And um, I think to say it like that, if I said it like that, without there being novels in the background, it could be a little trite. I mean, we're very familiar with the idea that we're enmeshed, enmeshed in other people's narratives. But I think the way that she has it acted out by her characters, who are all very conscious of the fact that they're, they're companions of singular individual beings, and that that singularity has to be defended. In addition to, at the same time, that sense of hey, well, maybe my story could be something else. Maybe I can reinvent myself. Maybe I can even take a cue from an older story and kind of continue that in my own life in some way. I think that double movement is key uh, to, to, to Smith's, to all Smith's novels, really starting from Like, which is my favorite of her novels up, up through the, uh, the present. Now you've made me want to like go back to front from what you were saying, because I also just finished reading Companion Piece and like I just was thinking about your essay on spark and how I mean I think of Smith as this like deeply grammatical and temporally interested writer to me the kind of quartet shifted away from that kind of grammatical or kind of that interest in temporality and toward the morality of stories they became like more mythical more allegorical um and I was just kind of hearing that and what you were saying there but if I can kind of remember the question you asked Gloria um, you're asking about wordplay, right? And how you can sometimes find it a little over-intellectualized or something like that. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, I feel like for me, like my resistance to it is very momentary I, because I feel like she, it ultimately serves a larger purpose. But um, I would be hard-pressed a little bit to explain that, I think. And so I was just asking 
how you see that or how you understand it. I mean, I guess it's, I think it's also, I feel like maybe this is also under the umbrella of a larger question that I'm always thinking about when we're talking about Ellie Smith, which is like, she's such a kind of arty writer in a way, but she's also very political. And I don't think she means for these novels to be sort of the province only of people like us who are very attuned to these literary devices. And I guess that's, that's a tension that I see in her novels. Yes. Okay. I have like six different answers in my head. If we're lucky, we'll get one or two out. Um, I had kind of wanted to say, oh, I don't really know if what is most interesting about Smith is like the word play so much as the wordiness. But I think even in the idea of the wordiness, like the fact that within the first 10 pages of novels by Smith, you'll find some sort of character who has this intuitive, insatiable, like extremely kind of non-institutionally mediated relationship to maybe art, maybe words, maybe in companion piece, blacksmithing and metalwork. Um, and yeah, I think this is, to be honest, having worked on Smith for a while in the British context, this is feedback that I hear a lot. Um, people say, oh, I really like reading Smith sometimes, but it can become cloying or... Um, if you're not in the right mood that day, like this sort of joyfulness of artful might not really read as joyful to you, right? Um, and I think that the tension between the sort of literary public that you're talking about and her Smith's sort of desire to speak to really quite an unbounded, un, um, like non-educationally stipulated sort of reading public, if that makes any sense, I think that tension is really clear in her work because she wants to have the fun with the wordiness. She wants to embed the anagrams. She wants to have these kind of characters repeating from one text to another in the quartet, but also wants to present a story that can be read at the surface, right? So listening to listening to Walt and to you, Charlotte, and to thinking kind of about Gloria's question, I was thinking sort of just now about the experience of teaching Smith, because right, that is a kind of educationally mediated context. But also, you know, my students are students who would never pick up Ali Smith if I didn't hand them Ali Smith. And there's a way that I think um, the kind of the cleverness, I think, sometimes doesn't doesn't even register, right? The, the sort of etymological impulse to, to read or to write about Ali Smith with my OED tab open in a browser so that I can sort of go, go diving into etymologies is not for them, I think, the, the thing that registers. And I think that there is this kind of, um, this kind of like affective counterpoint to, to the way that the wordiness works that there, it's always sort of for me, like, haunted or sort of these are characters who are steeped in loss often and sort of really struggling with a lot of things that are that are sad and for me that that sort of points to one of the the sort of moments of overlap or what I think of the as the moment of overlap between Charlotte's essay and Walt's which is Walt writes about the game of bagatelle which is of course a kind of wordplay moment and that game is a game that is about sort of um as Walt writes about kind of 
transforming how we how we deal with the stories we inherit, but it's really a game that's about the responsibilities of storytelling. And I was thinking about it this morning for kind of obvious reasons, but there's a moment when um, Elizabeth makes up a character and she makes up a man with a gun. And in response, Daniel says that his character is going to be a person in a tree costume, right? Which is incredibly... Um, frivolous and seems sort of destined to lose in this game. And the thing that he sort of tells Elizabeth and teaches her in that moment is that the gun is not the only thing you've got and it's not your only responsibility in telling the story. And so this is a, it's a child's game. It's sort of shot through with wordiness and sort of the, the sort of responsibility of making up a certain kind of world. And it's this moment, I think, where we see Smith's aesthetics and politics sort of stacked on top of each other so that they're fully aligned. And we end with Daniel saying, bagatelle it like it is, which is, of course, a wordplay, but it it is also insisting that kind of, right, it's this sort of moment that I think suggests that the trivial and straight talk are things that go hand in hand for Smith. And it, it all has to do with the ethics of storytelling, right? And the, the investments of storytelling. I mean, I'm always reminded of that line that Paddy says in Spring. Um, there's ways to survive these times. And I think one way is the shape the telling tells. You know, I mean, I, it's, that seems to me a, a, almost a, a deliberate callback to Bagatelle. One thing that really struck me in in the cluster, it, it actually made me think that like, I feel like the American reading public doesn't maybe properly register Ali Smith as Scottish. <laughs> I feel like she just kind of, I was actually saying the other day, and to me, it seems like Americans kind of just think of her as like a British writer. Like, I feel like there she's talking about Brexit. I'm not sure Americans really like differentiate fully. And I, I would love to hear you talk about like how you read her from where you are. Yeah, I was worried that this might come up. <laughs> this is going to turn into some sort of therapy session now. My own position as a Scot who's lived in London and England for a long time. How does it register? I mean, maybe it's interesting to note that Ali Smith came to me through a Scottish lecturer in England, in London. So I think part of her canonicity for me came through her being at university with my lecturer's brother, who is a sort of pop star. Um, And (laughs) he's called Momus, if you've ever heard of him. Uh, And his brother, Mark Curry, teaches at Queen Mary at the University of London. And he writes, he writes amazingly on Smith. They kind of know one another, but you know, they're not friends or anything from what I understand. Um, but, you know, Smith also was at university in Scotland as an undergrad, came to England to do a PhD. I believe she moved back up to Edinburgh at some point. I believe Sarah Wood, her partner, is English and they've lived in Cambridge a long, long time. Um, and that is that is the story of a lot of people in the UK generally. It's not a Scottish thing to, you know, pack up and move to London or the southeast of England where the jobs and the money are or whatever. Um, but I mean, it was frustrating to me that I wasn't that I'm at home with my parents this weekend because I wanted to go through all of my novels and p- pick out some moments for you where I thought, 
she is so clearly a Scottish writer here. Like the cadence of what is being written is like a Scottish tonality. But I'll just put that there as the the lack of the podcast. (laughs) We don't have it. But to me, reading her, I can hear being like not in England. I can hear being around people with a different lilt to their accent. And that's something that feels really important about her. But I think she also isn't... She's done a lot to popularise certain Scottish writers in a more national context. So Edwin Morgan that she writes about in Artful. He's someone you learn about at school in Scotland, but he's not someone that my friends who even did PhDs in English literature would have known about south of the border. Um, But I think that she herself has really taken on a sort of British persona in the sense of she's quite committed to Britain being a bit of a unit who has to tackle its politics um, as one. I mean, I can't speak to it now, but we did have a conversation once about Scottish independence and borders. And, you know, she wanted the UK to face up to its political problems as a unified nation and not as an independent Scotland, which I found quite interesting. I would love to know what she had to say about that now. Um, I don't know if any of this is at all interesting or useful, but it's definitely something that as a Scottish person writing about her, I've kind of tossed up in my mind um, and I almost have just sort of abandoned trying to discuss it beyond thinking about her status as a sort of cultural arbiter and a lot of her prefacing work that she does. So I think about her as Scottish in that context, but in the writing itself, I think she does have that loyalty. Not only does she explicitly draw on and affiliate herself with Scottish, other Scottish writers in her commonplace book, for instance, um, she quotes a lot of Scottish. I, I picked up Scottish writers based on her reading of them who, who, whom I didn't know before. Um, Spark being one of them, obviously. Uh, but I think um, th- there is a sense of outsiderness to being a Scottish writer that we see in her books. In terms of the characters, for instance, again, to mention like, um, if I'm not remembering it incorrectly, one of the main characters is a, is a Scottish woman who who's queer and... and um, you know, makes her way to England. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I think, you know, maybe there's, um, how to put this, uh, maybe there's a sense of antagonism too, to some of the more little England identities in her, in her novels, because the Scottish, because the Scottish kind of cosmopolitanism that affiliates itself with various kinds of global outsiders, both in terms of sexuality and in terms of gender and race. And, and I think, um, so I think the position of being both in and outside of that category of uh, British writer um, is, uh, you know, it, it deeply informs um, what we might think of the global aspect of her, of her fiction. For me, the, at least the way that I've sort of tried to communicate the the Scottishness of Smith to students who I think, Gloria, you're totally right. I think there's a way that that Smith is just sort of perceived as as a British writer alongside your other British writers of literary fiction. Specifically, I'm thinking about Autumn, just sort of thinking about her writing about Brexit and her sort of 
extreme skepticism about the kind of powers of the state. And the I think of the kind of image that I think Francisco has mentioned before of the kind of weeds and the flowers going growing through the fences. To me, that feels sort of particularly Scottish, but I'm not Scottish. Because it's nature and that's what's in Scotland. It's the mountains <laughs> and the grass and the wildness. Um, maybe, maybe it's... Um, Again, this is part of where my fault as a Scottish person who has abandoned Scotland because I went to university in England and we didn't learn any Scottish literature in my English London-centric university other than reading a bit of Muriel Spark, which, again, what is her relationship to her Scottishness? Questionable. What you said about about the difficulty of... uh, that sometimes it feels too close, reading her writing about Brexit and all that stuff... It's very, I, I feel like I have a very clear imagination of what you mean, because there are definitely moments of the last, you know, six years in American politics that I'm like, the last thing I want is to read a novel about that. Um, and I wonder, like, could you just explain what that feels like? I guess I'm wondering, I think I know what you mean, but I would like to know what you mean. What does it feel like? Um, I kind of feel like I want to like reach for like Cyan Nye and think about like the, I don't know, there's a sort of um, both an ambivalence and like a disgust or something. I'm like, how how can this already be narrativized and presented to me in fiction? The, the attempt to match up the writing of the politics can feel gimmicky sometimes, right? Or it is a gimmick, it's a publicity gimmick in some sense. Like if I can if I can try and write these novels almost as fast as these events are happening, and if I can heavily name drop every sort of headline or sensational moment of politics in these novels, then let's see what it can do. One of the things that I'm interested in hearing, and maybe this is coming from also uh, my own perspective as a scholar of multi-ethnic literatures of the U.S., um, there's a way in which, especially when we're talking about the formal qualities of texts, hearing how people register uh, certain ethnic forms or stories is very interesting. And so I think the, the example that Kara brought up, which I'm interested in, is the the, the problem is the fence, um, and so there's this very particular problem of what do you do when you have this sort of concept growing up. I guess Hannah Arendt comes in here too with the right to roam, which is like just an actual geo, it's like a geological and spatial concept. And then you go to places where you don't have this right. Um, and I was thinking about how the fence is registering. And I remember there's that huge argument between Elizabeth and this man about whose property this is or who's got the right to walk on something and thinking about how Brexit is even ushering in new forms of surveillance um, that she's particularly attuned to based on the fencing um, but then again, this is maybe less about Scottishness and more about the surveillance state um, and Smith trying to register the sort of emergent forms of fascism, the the way that, you know, uh, the EU and the UK and other big sovereign forms have been expanding outwards, uh, but also internalizing sovereignty uh, and surveillance. So, you know, there's a, the sort of the Eurafrican border uh, in the Saharan desert and all the concentration camps that the EU has been sort of funding and building. Uh, but also the internal surveillance. Um, It seems that Smith is particularly attuned to that um, in her novels. 
that's something that I've thought a lot about in sort of over the the kind of larger movement of the four novels of the quartet plus companion piece. Because one of the things that I think is incredibly striking, if you if you reread them kind of in a row, as I did over the course of the fall and the winter when we were sort of starting to work on the cluster, is that autumn and winter are really have really localized locations, right? Autumn is basically entirely in the village where Elizabeth lives with her mother. And we're sort of in the post office in the care home, but we're basically in one location. Winter takes place almost entirely in Cornwall. And then in spring, we have this kind of movement across the country, which is very different from the previous ones. And then we have the kind of road trip aspect of summer. And so there's the, there's a, a way that the quartet itself, I think, starts to insist on the right to roam in some ways, sort of in terms of the way that the plot architecture works. And the thing that I think is most interesting about companion piece in, in that regard is that because of COVID, because of lockdown, we get this kind of hyper concentration to the space of the home where we're thinking a lot about uninvited strangers and guests and, um, what Deborah Ray in the introduction in the most euphemistic, non-spoilery, beautiful turn of phrase called the limit case of hospitality. Um, and that's why I think the, the sort of, move and the turn to the open space of a common and the bicycle in companion piece is so important for the way that she thinks about the free movement of people. That maybe gets to another question I wanted to ask, which is um, sort of following up on something that uh, Walt wrote about in his piece, but also thinking about the really interesting thing about allegory, especially historically speaking, right? Even if you break it down etymologically, it's about placing something in another place right? So making something other or literally transporting an idea or set of concepts into another space where you can talk about them. Um, to talk about the very specific post-Brexitness or even COVIDness of companion piece or of the quartet, it's really interesting to talk about that as allegory because it, it can't be, yet it is. So I'm really fascinated in this tension, right? So how, do, how can you be specific about the real world and set an allegory in the actual real world rather than say an island of utopia or say uh, in this sort of uh, imagined world of the fairy queen. Um, is this, So something about the specificity there is so fascinating to me because it is making commentary. It's almost, is it suggesting that somehow this world is being made other? Is it trying to talk about the sort of alienation that one feels in the world as it is? Um, so in, in any case, what I'm generally interested in is how you can make allegory work in the real lived world um, of these novels. Well, I, I sort of, maybe this is just like a personal belief, but I kind of feel that it, it already is at work in the world. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I, I think that in our, I mean, we, we, we are, I think part of the point of the novels is that I, I agree with you, Francisco, they're, they're very distinct from the fairy queen, but I think what they, are almost claiming is something that is a facet of the lives that we live, that we not only are interpolated by other people's stories, but we find ourselves suddenly shocked into the realization that we are actually living out uh, older stories all the time and that people are interrupting them and coming into our lives in unexpected ways, but, and that we, we take unexpected turns in, in these stories, but there's still archetypal stories that we are inhabiting sometimes. 
So I was just thinking, as Walt was talking about the Bagatelle game, which Walt writes about, which has a moment in it where Elizabeth is sort of trying to insist on the falseness of storytelling. And she says, the world exists, stories are made up. And I'm not quoting this out of memory. I do have a notebook open <laughs> to this page. Um, and Daniel responds to Elizabeth to say, yes, stories are made up, but they're no less true for that, which is to say that stories are a part of the world that we live in. And they are in that way, sort of aspects of reality. And there is this kind of insistence in Smith. And I'm thinking particularly right now about the the very end of Lindsay's piece in the cluster, where she points to the way that Smith's use of poetic rhythm kind of returns us to the objects of the world, that the sort of divide between aesthetic creation and a politics or a real world, those are sort of false divides. One thing that I've been thinking of since Charlotte used the phrase talking about the sort of, um, I don't know, the kind of the way that Smith like reaches out beyond the sort of exclusively literary audience that she, I feel like she, she reaches out very explicitly sometimes. And one thing I love is the scene in It's Winter, right? Where um, Lux is reading on the bus stop and she's reading the like cottage chicken menu, but she's reading it very close. She's doing like a close reading of the, and you don't get access to what that reading was. You're like, what was she seeing in that cottage? It's called cottage chicken. Like that phrase really, st- I was like, cottage chicken. Like what? That's so weird. Um, but that this idea of like, I'm, I mean, I feel like, it's easy for me to imagine like a very academic reading of that that would be like, she's insisting that everything is a work of art, that it's a sort of, it's this, you know, capitalist product that's available for, you know, whatever. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like the, the, oh, so the phrase I loved of Charlotte's was the idea of like this sort of that readers who are not mediated by an institutional setting. And I feel like it's both the reader and the text that's being kind of, I don't know. What is she doing there? I guess that's what I'm wondering. I have to jump in just to say, it's chicken cottage, not cottage chicken. Oh, chicken cottage. Just right. for cottage our British chicken, listeners. Chicken yes, I reversed it. Thank you. It's chicken cottage because it's like a chicken coop. Yes. To me, it's a very um, personifying idea of the chicken, the chicken living in the... Co- like, I don't want to eat a chicken living in a cottage. <laughs> it's, it's a weird one. It's, it's a... It's not the most popular fried chicken franchise by any means. So I do wonder if there is something worth reading into with her choosing this one, as opposed to the host of sort of KFC knockoffs that you get. You get like PFC for perfect fried chicken. You can imagine all of the others. Um, But yeah, again, I kind of have this question mark over moments like, (laughs) I have like a question mark over Lux sitting reading the chicken cottage menu because I mean what is that really telling us about a person that again it's they're so intuitively or so curiously born that I don't know is it a bit like are they supposed to be quirky or are we as like readers who maybe are reading Smith in a particularly sort of like seminar mediated way, are we now 
you know, noticing, noticing that girl by the bus stop. Wow, isn't she, isn't she quirky? Isn't she, isn't she the sort of the magical feature of this story that we're supposed to now attach some sort of morality onto? I feel like I want to, I want to read it in kind of the opposite way to kind of say it's sort of a joke that it's like, oh, you're, you want to say, oh, Lux, that name, what does it mean or whatever? But we could also just read anything that way. And, you know, just because it's fun, like it's don't kind of a get over yourself. Like, yes, you're doing that, but we're all doing that, whether it's to the you know, chicken cottage menu or whatever. But I think it's also Smith being a little bit earnest too and saying, like, we're all reading all of the time. You know, sometimes we're reading a menu for something called chicken cottage. And as someone like Lux is, who's not born in the UK and is partly reading it to maybe become more acquainted with, like, the weird idiosyncrasies of London life, like chicken cottage now becomes yeah it's a, a bit of a joke like you say it becomes this weird uh like the 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 starkness or the strangeness of the name of the shop jumps out a little bit more I also love that we don't know why like there's a little bit of the privacy of Lux's mind is like the re you know an omniscient narrator could have told us what what was going on there but it's like no she's having her own reading experience that is not available to us and i i like that i think that's totally right and i was thinking um i was thinking as you both were talking about the bit in matt's piece where he's sort of pointing to the sort of smithy characters who are i forget exactly what his phrasing is but something like poised between something and and girl boss but for me sort of lux reading the chicken cottage menu is sort of and the fact that we we see that from art's perspective is sort of about about smith making fun of the degree to which art understands his interaction with lux in that moment to be sort of meeting a manic pixie dream girl when of course she sort of is and isn't that thing but it's also sort of a commentary on on attention in a lot of ways right you can turn your attention to the chicken cottage menu but that's not any more absurd than any of the objects to which art turns his attention so for me i think it's it's less about characterizing lux and more about characterizing art even just Kara, hearing you talking about art, one of the fascinating things is, and this is maybe the uh, what you were objecting to earlier, Charlotte, is um, are you talking about art or about art? Uh, and it's just this inherent absurdity of just like, is it really too much sometimes? Uh, what are you talking about art turning its attention to uh, or turning his attention to? It's just a very funny sort of moment of um, you recognize it and then you recognize it too much almost. This sort of... Uh, maybe the problems of recognition as an aesthetic form. I think that the quartet in some ways is so very much like of a piece with the rest of her work, but at the same time, it's, it's the quartet is um, like tidier and cuter than everything else in her work. I feel like, I don't know. I don't know if you feel that way, Deborah Ray. I keep coming back to that one line of Charlotte's um, contrivance is the enchanted heart of narrative. Um, and that seems to me a little tidier than what Walt is saying, right? I mean, that, that's, that somehow um, 
somehow it it doesn't it doesn't include within it that um, that that impulse to to somehow blow up narrative or counter narrativize. I mean, does that make sense to you? Um, and I'm wondering I'm I'm wondering whether contrivance isn't isn't it in some sense a, 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 a more polite term, you know, a, or, or doesn't, doesn't render her narrative as, as, as more polite than perhaps it is in, in, um, um, in possibility. I mean, to me, contrivance as a word does the work of thinking about Smith's intense love of tricks and, you know, the, her reliance on, you know, unpicking kind of formal devices or structures of stories. Um, and it also, for me, nicely links back up to the idea of gimmickry. And I suppose the reason I kind of ended on that note is because I want to find a way to forgive some of what I find rather tidy about Smith's own writing or the fact that it, you know, anything can be chalked up to the fact that I was just playing with contrivance in some sense. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like I've just been so negative about Smith this whole podcast. I just feel reluctant to say anything else now. Because I'm such a, I'm such a, I've really put on my dour Scottish hat this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Apropos of your kind of dour, dour feelings about Smith, which I, I think are, are not as dour as you're making them out to be, Charlotte. One question I sort of wanted to ask you if you're if you're open to it, is that it seemed like both you and Walt had these kind of like effusive reactions to Companion Piece and you really, really loved it. And when Deborah Ray and I read it, we had sort of slightly more skepticism, um, sort of slightly, I, I, maybe that's a, a slightly more negative reaction. And part of that might be that there was so much pressure on our reading of it, just sort of both temporally to kind of try to to read it as quickly as possible in order to write the introduction for the cluster as quickly as possible. But I'm I'm interested in in the kind of effusiveness of how much you loved it. <laughs> I think partially it was the the absence once again of a like really explicit kind of political timestamp. But no, I mean, obviously it's happening during COVID and actually something that I found really interesting at the beginning is that, I mean, there was an illusion, unfortunately not naming any names, um, to uh, a really big kind of police uh, abuse issue in recent British politics where these sisters, Biba Henry and Nicole Smallman, were found murdered and these two policemen who were guarded... Um, you know, made, made to guard their bodies overnight um, and protect the crime scene, took photos of their bodies and sent them to their police WhatsApp group and, you know, were like laughing about the fact that they were watching over these um, dead women of colour. Um, and so, you know, these, these timestamps are still there in Companion Piece, but it didn't feel like it was, was hinged so specifically on a sort of renunciation or... Um, analysis of the politics one way or another so I think that made me feel as though there was a little bit more room for it to become literary again um, I sound like a uh, <laughs> it's funny actually because listening to 
you guys speak about the quartet, I'm now sitting here realizing that I almost had a bit of a resistance to actually reading it as a literary critic. And I felt like I should respond to it as a politicized person um, in the UK and specifically someone who works in education. Um, and so, yeah, I suppose part of my reaction to companion piece and especially the fact that there was this, you know, close reading of the E.E. E. Cummings poem, uh, I've I felt like there was a bit more space to to read again instead of to to take on something that was difficult to take on and maybe feel as though it was like a little too contrived. Hopefully that makes some sense, but I don't know if maybe that also registered for you to Cara and Deborah Ray that maybe the maybe the absence of the political or the return of too much of the kind of twee literariness or the wordiness, maybe that's what was a bit more muted for you or made your responses a bit more muted. I would love to hear about how maybe that works in reverse. I, I want to hear Karen Deborah Ray's answer, but I just want to comment that I think that's so interesting what you just said. I mean, I feel like as, as people who work on the contemporary, it's something we think about a lot, obviously, it's like how current events are kind of refracted or not and what is the role of kind of metaphor and figuration and literary representation and i feel like i mean maybe one of the things that makes the quartet a little bit difficult is that sometimes there's not a lot of literary refraction to those current of even though there's such literary novels the political is represented pretty straightforwardly sometimes like it's it's very there's it's not it's not refracted through some kind of literary device quite often um and then maybe that's easier for us to talk about um you know from a distance that for american readers we can talk about brexit i feel like you know for us i mean when i was saying like there are things that as an american reader i would not as someone who lived in the united states for the last six years like I would not want to read a novel about like living under the Trump presidency, for example, like that was just horrifying. And I don't want to think about it. And I have to think about it sometimes, but I don't enjoy that. And so I would not go there as a matter of like my literary life, if unless I have to. And I wonder if that's kind of what you're talking about. You know, I, I do. I do think that's partly it. But I also think, you know, that partly speaks to potentially my uh, my cowardliness or my my uncertain feelings about what politics should look like in contemporary fiction um, and you know part of what I both love and hate about Smith as I've said is you know you know what kind of novelist puts anagrams in their fictions like who does that why so it both enervates me and like I find it really kind of funny and you know there's a lot to work with there um, and I suppose it's the reverse side. Um, what, yeah, what, what am I supposed to do with this intense politicism that I know because I'm in it? Uh, and I'm, do you know what, actually, uh, this is, sorry, this maybe shouldn't, shouldn't go in, but I saw Smith reading from, I think it was the first book of the quartet, it was from Autumn, and you know how it opens it was the worst of times. It was the best, the, the kind of Tale of Two Cities thing. And yeah, that I think that sealed the deal for me. <laughs> I was like, no, this is the incorrect response to, to Brexit. This is not, 
I, I didn't I didn't find it um, helpful. I think it to me felt like a sort of like a strange literary cop out. Um, but then I've since because I know that Smith actually does do lots of political work behind the scenes, and I think the quartet got better for me as it went on. I sort of felt like I had to revise it a bit, but it was something. It really, truly was something about that initial moment of you know the first Brexit novel and the sort of press that went around with that. It just turned a lot of people off that were, um, yeah, sort of my like fellow PhD student friends or like lecturers in in the UK at that time. The funny thing is that for me, it, it actually doesn't really register as specifically a COVID novel at all, in the sense of of somehow the. Um, the, the, the specificity and the sort of immersion in the everyday, because as you, as I think you alluded to earlier, the way that space operates in companion piece and the way that lockdown operates in companion piece makes it almost seem as though by immersing herself in the everyday of COVID and the, sort of the political aspects of COVID, she's also in some sense metaphorizing the entire question of containment of, of separateness, of hospitality that she's been talking about in all of these other novels. And so to me, in that sense, it feels absolutely of a piece with, um, with the quartet, but also as a, a kind of, of coda that takes the specificity of the quartet and, and makes it literary again. Yeah, I'm wondering now a little bit about whether the well, because the thinking about kind of form and structure in the quartet, there are so many different ways that one could describe the way that the the novels are structured, right? We've got the kind of seasonal structure, but there there's also the the literary structure, right? Which has every novel keyed to a Dickens and a Shakespeare. And I'm wondering if sort of the that kind of like insistent literariness in the quartet, which I think is absent in companion piece, maybe allows more room for the kind of reading that, that Charlotte was talking about. There aren't these kind of governing long-standing plots and character types that she has to work with the, the game is different in companion piece and i think maybe that's maybe that's another thing that at least for Deborah and I sort of talked about this back and forth when we were reading Companion Piece. In addition to having kind of all of these echoes going off in our heads of connections to all of the essays in the cluster, we were both having sort of echoes of connection to every single Smith novel that isn't in the quartet. And so there's a way in which I think maybe by not having the sort of the Dickens and the Shakespeare structure for Companion Piece, that sort of allows maybe for Charlotte more of a uh, a return of the sense of of sort of play that for me at least is most operative and how to be both which for all that it is a kind of very complicated very sad novel in a lot of ways i think is maybe smith at her most kind of freewheeling and playful yeah and you know as much as it's all like how to be both is a playful novel it's also a novel about surveillance and looking being a kind of watching and spying. Um, again, yeah, before before Brexit, before any uh, of the events of the last, what is it, six years between those, um, the first and last, before any of those events, Smith was always writing about CCTV cameras uh, or birds sitting on the trees being a sort of... Uh, 
pre uh, kind of pre surveillance technology to the CCTV cameras. She's always been so attuned to these things. All right. Well, uh, thank you all uh, for joining us today. I'm so glad we got to talk quite a bit about companion piece too, because this came up a bit in our first session, and it just feels like a great place to go. Um, maybe. Ellie Smith companion piece cluster at some point in the future, or what comes after companion piece even. The last voice you heard was Francisco Robles. He was in conversation with Deborah Ray Cohen, Cara L. Lewis, Charlotte Terrell, Walt Hunter, and Gloria Fisk. You can find Ali Smith now at post45.org slash contemporaries, along with all our previous clusters. And look out for our next cluster on boredom dropping on the website very, very soon. If you're interested in pitching us an idea for a cluster, please email us at post45contemporaries at gmail.com. Further information on what we look for in a pitch can be found on the website post45.org. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And if you'd like to leave us a positive rating and review, that helps other people find the show. I've been Michael Doherty. You've been listening to Pod 45.